Well, good evening. Welcome to week two. Uh, back Wednesday night community. Excited to be back together here for this semester. Um, two things, uh, or just to point out a couple things uh, real quickly on the back of your bulletin. For uh, those of you who are interested, I had some conversations with some people last week of saying, oh, I'm thinking about going on this Israel trip. This is the last week to sign up, so deadline is coming up if you would like to join um, our uh, Dr. Jim Lindsay and me and our trip to Israel and Jordan over spring break. Uh, would love to have you join us there. And our, our class for that, for those of you who are gonna be on the trip, our seven-week pre-trip class will start this Sunday for that if you're interested in uh, being a part of that. And then last thing is inside your bulletin, our wonderful um, Timberline Student Ministries. How many of you have kids who are in TSM Middle School on this night? Okay, a couple of you guys. Uh, uh, J-Matt, our, our middle school pastor, has included some, some questions. He calls them car questions. I think he assumes that you're driving cars and that you're going to be driving cars home with your kids. And these are some questions about some things that they talked about. Uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's nice as a parent to kind of have like a little bit of a kickstart instead of like, how was group tonight? Fine. And then you're like, cool. Well, um, so that you can actually be like, hey, so I heard you talked about this. And, talk, and they'll probably be like, how did, how did you know we talked about that? And he's like, I always say because I have daddy eyes. I, was, I want my kids to know this creepy thought of like, I know everything. So anyway, if you want to have some good conversations with your kids, take a look at those. Um, so we're, we're in this series looking at the fruit of the Spirit and asking this, this question that's maybe the most important question that, that we can ever ask in life, and that's who am I becoming because the reality is every decision that I make, I remember C.S. Lewis writing this one time, he said, I have to remind myself that, that every tiny decision, and by that he means action, behavior, place where my mind goes, like every decision I make with my will that, that, that causes something to happen, he says, is making an indelible impression upon me, the me, me, like the deep down, my soul. It's making an indelible impression. He says, and at the end of my life, there's going to be a carving <laughs> that's me. It's the shape of me. The shape of my soul is being formed by how I react to my kids when they're bothering me. <laughs> the shape of my soul is being, is being formed by how I respond in a situation where, man, I'm, you know, I'm on my last thread or, or I'm tense. You know what I mean by that? We, we use language like habits, habituation. That's kind of that idea. I'm, I'm developing into a kind of person. And so that's probably the most important question that we can ask is, who am I becoming? And Paul in Galatians chapter 5 brings up what we're calling, or what he's called, the fruit of the Spirit. And he's saying this, th this is a way to kind of look at, this is the goal. Because the fruit of the Spirit, it's Jesus, essentially. This is what Jesus looked like. And God's goal is that we're transformed into the image of his son. And that doesn't mean personality. We all have unique personalities and temperaments. He's talking about these components, these realities. And so week one, if you missed it, I would encourage you to go back and listen online because it, it set the tone and it set the stage for where we're going to go in this whole series. But just as kind of a real quick uh, recap, week one, we talked about this idea that the, the authors of the Bible want us to see, first of all, uh, this idea that, that humans are like trees. 
Anyone here go back? I, I, I mentioned the Bible Project podcast. Anyone actually go back and listen to it? Okay. <laughs> Didn't have an hour to waste. One person did. Oh, good. Let's talk afterwards. Two people did. Fabulous. We'll have a small group afterwards. It's, it's, if, if you're thinking that sounds weird, we'll go back and listen to last week or li- listen to the podcast. But Paul picks up on this idea that the biblical authors want us to see that, that humans are like trees. And there's this deep parallel from page one onward. And, and so he picks up this ancient Hebrew theme when he says what it means to have the, the life sap of God going through us is that we naturally produce fruit in our lives. And um, and so we, we looked at this idea of that there's oftentimes confusion when we think of the work or the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so we explore the idea of what does it mean to be baptized by the Spirit? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? This idea of there are gifts of the Spirit. And then finally, the fruit of the Spirit. We kind of tried to make some clear categories and get rid of some of that confusion. And specifically, we're looking at Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Um, and we'll read here in just a second that passage of Scripture that we're using as a springboard for this entire series. But just to give you a little bit of context, what Paul's contrasting it with, he says the fruit of the Spirit, what, what, what comes before verse 22, is essentially the, the fruit of the flesh. And we said the flesh doesn't mean your body. Uh, Paul's not one of these people who thinks the body's bad and the Spirit's good. Um, th- that's, a, that's a heresy that the church early on rejected. Um, Huma- the church has always believed that the, that the human soul, the body-soul unity is all good. God created the world, and his world is good by nature. But flesh, Paul uses kind of as shorthand as a way to speak about the fallen aspects of us. Now, that might be bodily things, habits, bodily habits, but it's also aspects of our will and of our emotions, um, every aspect of what it means to be human, but the broken part of it. He oftentimes uses the word flesh as sort of shorthand to refer to, you know that part of you that always screws you up and it's really broken? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That's the part of the flesh. And he says, if, if, you, if you just let that go, if you just say, I'm just going to express myself, I'm just going to you know, sort of let myself rule myself, <laughs> he says, it's going to look really disgusting. I don't know about you guys, but if you've ever had periods in your life where you realize, I've given sort of full throttle, full reins to just me doing what I want unbridled. It's pretty disgusting. It looks pretty chaotic. It's pretty gross. And any, I don't know anyone who's lived a moment of honest life who hasn't experienced that at least in pieces or at, or at moments where they've, they've realized part of that. And this is what we have to realize is scripture has a very different message than modern Western culture, right? One of the creeds of the modern Western culture is be true to what? Yourself right? What, whatever that might mean. The creed is sort of express yourself, right? Jesus's creed is deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It's a very, very different message. It's complete opposite. It's 180 degrees in the opposite direction, and it's not just this sort of monastic, you know, self-repression. Jesus says, if you want to find your life, you want to really find it, you have to lose it, for me, and then you get it back, the true one that you were always going for. So it's a completely different message here. And so that's what he's saying. Here's the fruit of the Spirit. If you submit to the person of Jesus, step off the throne of your life and allow Jesus to be on your throne, do you know what your life will look like if you were a tree? (laughs) 
He says, it'll be things like this, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, and we can see it, it'll be up on the screens here. The fruit of the Spirit, that is Him being in control, it is love, and it's joy, and it's peace. Boy, wouldn't that be a nice life? Just those three, stop right there. It's patience, and kindness, and goodness. Man, what, what if all my relationships looked like that? It's faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control as a general disposition on life. And then he says, against such things, there is no law. And then finally last week, and this is, I think, in your bulletin, kind of as a recap there as well. Paul then presents us with, so these, these fruit of the Spirit, to kind of break them down, if you weren't here last week, we looked at the idea that, that Paul gives them to us in, in triads, that is groups of three. And so he gives us three triads. The first three are love, joy, and peace. And these are what, what we've called habits of the mind, uh, kind of just in more general aspect. And then the second triad is peace, uh, I'm sorry, is patience, kindness, and goodness. And we're understanding these as sort of special qualities that, that impact interpersonal relationships that we have. And then the third triad in the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And these are just relating to uh, Christian conduct more generally. And then finally, um, we, we gave sort of a challenge. Anyone here take up the challenge this week? Uh, a couple people did. The challenge was, what if I did what this great Christian minister who just passed away a few years ago, John Stott, did every morning? What if I, what if I prayed this prayer and the prayer's in your, in your bulletin, and we handed some out that are a little bit nicer. If you want to pick one of these up, you can afterwards. But this prayer, it's, it's, in a, um, it's in a Trinitarian form. And every single morning, the great John Stott, who died as a very old man, every morning before he got up out of bed, these words rolled off of his lips. Heavenly Father, I pray that this day I may live in your presence and please you more and more. Jesus, Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love and joy and peace, patience, kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And what I mentioned last week, my, my, my prayer, and, and I've been doing this, I've missed a couple days, to be honest with you. Sometimes I, I, you know, I'm shaving and I realize, oh, I, darn it, I didn't do it. Um, or I'm, you know, I'm doing something else, I'm in the car, and I'm like, oh, I didn't do it. That's okay. Um, but it's this idea of transformation takes a long time. In fact, it takes a lifetime. But, but I, want, I desperately want, uh, I, was, I was just at a, uh, a graveside service today. I was at a funeral yesterday. And we read a eulogy, and it always makes me think, man, what's going to be said of me? You know, what's my eulogy going to be? And it's like, there's, there's, there's nothing more that I want than to hear things like these words saying, oh, you know what Brent was like? <laughs> man, his love and joy and peace and patience. That's so badly what I want. And so it's like I want to set myself in this direction of saying, God, I want to pursue you. I want your spirit to do these things, this fruit kind of naturally in my life. And so what, what I want us to do is uh, tonight we're going to start, we're going to be looking at the, 
at the first one. But before I jump into that, let me just say something about this idea of, of the fruit. Notice that, that the collective fruit in Galatians 5 are spoken of as one fruit. It's not nine fruit. Did you see that? Um, when, when Paul says it, he says the fruit of the Spirit is, he uses the singular verb. He doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit are. And that's significant. Now contrast that with the gifts of the Spirit. Remember the gifts? Um, Paul even says, does everyone have every gift? Remember he says, you know, do all prophesy, do all speak in tongues. He goes, no, right? But the Spirit gives the gifts as he decides. The fruit's different. It's, it's not, you know, nine different ones and like, well, you're really good at self-control. You're pretty good at peace, right? It's not like I can say, well, my, you know, my particular fruit is peace, but I'll, I'll just let other people, you know, kind of compensate for the self-control thing. I won't really go there, <laughs> right? You get that? That's, that's not what's going on here. In fact, John Stott once said, God is not in the business of producing lopsided Christians, that idea of it's like, man, I'm really good at kindness. Because here's the reality. I'm guessing every person in this room, one of those things, you're probably naturally good at. I know some people who are just like naturally kind, right? I hate them. I wish I were that. I'm not that way. Like, that's a hard thing for me. They're just, even if they weren't a Christian, they would just generally be a kind person because that's their temperament, right? But that's, not what, that's why it's not the nine fruit. One fruit, which is to say to follow Jesus means this whole kind of holistic idea of growth is happening in my life as I'm submitting to the Holy Spirit. So the purpose of the Spirit is to create this full-orbed view or person of Christ in me and in you. And so over the next nine weeks, we're going to we're going to be looking at them individually, though we need to be careful <laughs> that we don't see them as these individual standalone things. It's, it's almost like a, a, a multi-sided uh, or a multi-dimensional jewel. Can you picture like a diamond that has multiple sides to it? All we're doing is we're turning the diamond. <laughs> Does that make sense? And we're seeing the light shine through, and we're looking at the different sides, but it's all one piece. It can never be separated from each other. So the first one is love. Agape is the Greek word that Paul uses here. You've probably heard that word used oftentimes. But what's interesting is, is why does he start with love? And I don't think it's an accident. I don't think he's just, again, kind of doing a, a shotgun approach of listing a bunch of things. Paul undoubtedly believed that love was the most important of them all. And not just from this passage, we can go to other places and, and we see that that was on the very top of Paul's list. Anytime he talked about growing in Jesus or maturity or what it looks like to follow him, probably every wedding you've been to, what's the one passage you've probably always heard? 1 Corinthians 13, right? Let me read some of these words. Love is patient. It's, it's, Paul, it's Paul just riffing on love. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It doesn't boast and it's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable and resentful. Love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but it does rejoice in truth. And then it says, love has this amazing ability to bear all things, to believe all things, to hope all things, to endure all things. He says, love never comes to an end. 
And then later he talks about a lot of prophecy is going to end, words of wisdom, all this. He says, but love will never end. It's an ongoing thing. It's never going to stop. And then he says, uh, verse 13, so now these three things remain. You remember this? You can probably quote it. What are the three that remain? Faith, hope, and love. Good things. But he says, but the greatest of these, what is it? Greatest of these is love. Paul has love at the, at, the, at the pinnacle of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So the reason love's come, love comes first is because all these other, love, joy, peace, patience, kind, they flow out of love. Love is like the fountainhead of the stream, okay? It's where everything comes out of. And in fact, they're even included, you could say, in love, which makes sense. That's why Jesus said, you want to sum up all all of, of, of the law of the Torah, what's it summed up in? Two things. Love God, love neighbor, right? Everything is summed up in that right there. And so love, it's intended to be the, the sort of operative dynamic of just the normal day-to-day Christian life. And so this, this, this Greek word agape that we, we translate love it's sort of just the, the, the common New Testament word to talk about what should govern all my personal relationships in life. And it reflects how God has, I don't know if I should say chosen or just, he, how, how God has chosen to respond to broken, messed up humans. All throughout history, it's how God has chosen to respond to them, ultimately culminating in the person of Jesus. And we all long for it, don't we? Don't you long to be loved? And, and not just like partial, <laughs> not, not just like imperfect. We all long to be loved perfectly. We long to be loved in a whole way. Uh, Mark Lewis, he's a, uh, a theater professor at Wheaton College. And uh, Mark Lewis tells the story about, about growing up. He's, he was one of eight kids. And he said he just never really fit in with his family. Mark is an artist. He's a theater guy. If you look at Mark Lewis, I, he was like in soap opera. He's a real good-looking dude, you know. He's like in soap operas back in, I think, like the 90s and that sort of thing. But he's this artist guy. And the rest of his family were not. And so he said, I never felt understood by them. And he tells a story about when he was six years old, uh, one of his, old, his, his parents were away from the house, and one of his older siblings were uh, watching him. And you all know how that goes, right? Every time. And so Mark, this little six-year-old who's this artist, he said, I wanted to let my parents know how much I loved them. And I, and I, and I just didn't feel like they knew. And so he said, um, he had a, the back wall of his house, there was a staircase that went up the back wall, and it was a big white wall, and he thought, I want to paint a mural for them on this back wall to show them how much I love them. And so Mark got out his felt tip markers and he got out his paints and he got out his crayons and he said he spent all day, little six-year-old Mark, painting this mural on the back wall. And he said as he was painting, he kept thinking to himself, when my mom and dad get home, they're gonna know how much I love them. They're gonna know. He said he imagined, imagined them going like, and getting the neighbors and saying, come see what Mark did for us. Come see how much he loves us. And of course, you can imagine what happened. Mom and dad got home and he got punished quite severely. He said he was spanked and he was, and he was sent away. And Mark said, what hurt so bad was not the punishment. It was that they didn't understand what I was trying to do. They didn't understand what I was trying to tell them. <clears throat> Fast forward years later, as I said, Mark's a theater professor at, at Wheaton. 
And in the, at the, uh, the autumn play is a very busy season for Mark. It, it, it's very, very time-consuming. All day long he spends, he teaches classes, he has office hours, he has to do um, faculty governance meetings, he gets to come home for a short break for like an hour, and then he has to go back for rehearsals that go long into the night, sometimes past midnight. And, and so he, w- he was well into this. He said, you know, I was several months into the process of the autumn, autumn play, and he said, I came home one day, and he, he came in and uh, sat down. He's got about an hour, and he was exhausted, and he sat down a little side room off of the kitchen, and he saw his little six-year-old daughter, Ruby, and she was at the sink in the kitchen. She had a basin of water, and it was splashing everywhere, getting on the floor, and he thought, oh, I've come home for an hour. I'm weary, and now I'm going to have to go clean up that water. So he walked into the room. He said, Ruby, what are you doing? And Ruby just burst into tears, and Mark's wife, Mary, said, Mark, she knows you're exhausted. She was filling up this basin to wash her feet with. And he said, oh, Ruby, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. So he got Ruby, and he, he helped her f- fill up the basin of water. And he said, that was the coldest water I've ever put my feet in in my life. And he said, you know, my parents didn't get it right. He said, I got it half right. Maybe someday Ruby will get it all Right. Why is that story so moving to us? I think it's because we've all been on the, on the end of being misunderstood and receiving that imperfect love. You know what I mean by that? But the reality is we've also always been on the other end where we've meted out and given imperfect love to people that we're in contact with. The Bible says perfect love, what? It casts out fear. But if that's true, I think imperfect love breeds anxiety. I think that's true in all of our lives. I've never been loved perfectly by another person. But I also know that I've never loved anyone else perfectly. I've given imperfect love to people. And so are you starting to feel why this is so important? Are you starting to feel what's at risk? If we don't love well, what kind of families we create. If we don't love well, what kind of workplaces we just find ourselves in. If we don't love well, what kind of church community we end up being a part of. If we don't love well, what kind of nation we live in. If we don't love well, what kind of world are we a part of. That's why Paul puts it at the beginning, There's nothing more important. He says, I don't care what else you've got. I don't care what else you're good at. I don't care what else you do. If you're missing this one piece, it's all for naught. And most of us have experienced that in our families. We've experienced it in some groups that we've been a part of. And so while Paul has a lot to say about love, there's actually no one in the Bible who says more about love than John. John says a ton about it, more than any other writer in the New Testament John emphasizes this idea. In fact, in the Gospel of John, John reminds his reader three different times that Jesus commanded love. John 13, 34, a new command I give you, Jesus said, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. John 15, 12. My command is this, 
love each other as I have loved you. John 15, 17, this is my command, love each other. Um, John also, besides the gospel, wrote three letters or epistles, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, a little later in, in your New Testament. In 1 John alone, five times, he reminds us it's a command to love. And he gives a lot of detail about how we should do it. I'll give you just a couple here. 1 John 3.11, for this is the message you heard from the beginning we should love one another. 1 John 3.23, this is his command, to believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. He said this is his singular command, believe and love. He says it's the same command. 1 John 4.11, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So if anything can be said to be primary in being a Christian, if anything can be said to be central, if anything can be said to be absolutely essential in being a Christian or becoming like Jesus, what is it? <laughs> yeah, no-brainer. It's love. It's this command to love. That's why Paul starts with love. So here's what I want to do, and I think you've got a couple uh, fill-in-the-blanks as we go. If There's uh, four there. Love, when it's operational, when it's functional, and I, and, and I mean the kind of love that comes from God, there are four observations that we can see. Number one, love, and what I mean by love is, what, what, what Paul means primarily here, I think, is love for one another. He's assuming love for God. He's talked about that before. This context here, it's about love for you from another person. Okay? Number one, it's evidence of life. You want to fill that first blank in there, it's life. Evidence of life. And I should have put this in there. What I mean by life is it's evidence to you, the person, or, or to, to ourselves. It's evidence that I have God's life in me. It's evidence to me. John, as we mentioned earlier, he really wanted his readers to know for sure he wanted them to be sure that they had God in them and in their lives. And so the question becomes, well, how can you know that you have the life that God gives? Well, when you see evidence of love growing in your life. Listen to 1 John 3.14. Listen to this. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. See, it's what proves you have passed from death to life. It's not what makes you pass. Is that, like, don't, don't get that confused. <laughs> Just loving. Oftentimes, we start think, well, they're a very loving person. It, that's not what causes you to pass from life or, or from death to life. Jesus said in John 5, 24, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So Jesus is saying that when I respond to him in faith, when I put my, my, my allegiance, my trust in Jesus, I receive eternal life. I have it. But what John wants us to see here is that when I love one another, I subjectively know that I have it. Does that make sense? It's, if in, in philosophy, there's an area called epistemology. Cool big word, right? Epistemology refers to how do, how do, I, how do I know things? 
How can I become aware? There might be something that's true, but I don't know it. And so it's this idea that, that, that I have epistemic warrant, you might say. I, I have reason to believe that, yes, I am in God's family because I'm seeing love grow in my life. It's not what causes me to be in the family, that I'm a loving person, but it's what lets me know, oh, I am, I have been adopted. It gives me reason to believe. Number two, love expressed for others is evidence of faith. And this isn't evidence to me. This is now evidence to those outside of me. Does that make sense? Evidence to others of the faith. 1 John 3.17 says this, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words. That's easy, right? Love ya. <laughs> or speech, but with actions. That's the whole point here. It's love in action. Love in action is what gives evidence of faith. It kind of sounds like the book of James. You ever read the book of James? And James says, faith without what? Works. He goes, it's dead, right? Now, he's, it's, it's not the idea that works save you. It's faith alone. Martin Luther had a great way of putting it. He says, faith alone is what saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Authentic faith, because James asked the question, can a faith that doesn't actually do anything, can that kind of faith save you? No, that kind of faith can't, because that kind of faith isn't faith. It's a false faith. True faith naturally does things, and that's the parallel. John would agree, Paul would agree and say, true love is not, it, it's not virtue signaling. It's, it's, it's not tweeting something going, oh, I'm for that. It's not saying, oh, that's good. That's just virtue signaling. True love takes action. It has a step involved in it. Number three, love is evidence of God. It's evidence of God. First John 4, we read this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because, listen to this, God is love. That's one of the most radical statements in the Bible. God doesn't love. God is love. He is the very ground of love. He's the fountainhead of love. And which means that even God's actions of discipline, hear this, even God's actions of discipline derive out of his love. Uh, Christopher Wright in his book on the fruit of the spirit about this topic of God's love being primary and really being the fount for even actions like discipline writes this, all that God does or says is ultimately an expression of his love. When God acts in justice, it is an expression of God's love. When God acts in anger, it is God's love defending itself and us from everything that would spoil and destroy the world, and the people he has made in love. God's whole attitude and action towards his creation is love. So even in his punishment of evil, 
It is like quarantining cancer. It's because he loves what will not spoil, and he refuses for the whole rest of the world to be blackmailed by that. And the cross, I would suggest, it's the ultimate evidence of God's love. The love of the Father and the love of the Son. You guys know John 3.16, but 1 John 3.16 says this. This is how we know what love is. It's like this is what defines love for us. Christ Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. And I would suggest there's something about that truth or that reality that every single person is captured by. Um, do you know the director, James Cameron? Anyone know him? What movies has he done? Okay, Titanic. So those. I remember the very first James Cameron movie I ever saw. Now, James Cameron's a guy, I've seen a lot of interviews with him. He's a guy who, he's, I've rarely seen him interview when he doesn't make some disparaging comment about Christians. He does not like Christians. I don't know what the burr is under his saddle, but he's not a fan of Christians. <clears throat> but look at the movies he makes. Very first James Cameron movie I ever saw was Terminator. You ever see this one? It's a great movie, right? What's Terminator about? It's a man, who, man from a future world who comes back to save a woman and her child and sacrifices himself. And you don't realize to the end of the movie that he came with full knowledge that he would have to die in order for them to live. What's Terminator 2 about? Same story, new character, right? What's the next big movie he did? Titanic, right? Spent more money on Titanic than had been spent on any movie up to that point. He built a set a quarter the size of the actual Titanic. What's the story about? There's a young man named Jack, and he's playing cards, and he wins a ticket to the doomed ship Titanic, and he runs onto the ship as it's starting to go away. He runs to the front of the boat. He makes the shape of the cross, and he says, I'm king of the world. And then we meet a young lady on the boat, and, and she's stuck on the doomed ship, and her father has died, lefting her and her mother penniless, and so her mother is, 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 is pushing her to marry a man. She says, I'm not going to be a, wash, a washerwoman because they're penniless, and this man has means, but he's also, we find, almost like the incarnation of the devil. He's evil. He's this horrible guy. He doesn't love her. He will use her, though. And so at one point in the movie, completely despondent, she goes to the stern of the ship, and she's going to jump off of it, and she mysteriously meets someone there, Jack. And Jack saves her life. And at the end of it, we all know the tragic story at the end. And Jack gives up his place so that she might live, and he, he falls off into the depths of the earth and leaves her life as mysteriously as he entered it. And then years later, when she's an old woman, she's called back, and she said, Ask, you know, tell us the story, tell us about it. She tells all about this man, and they say, that's so, <clears throat> that's so strange, we have no record of this man, Jack. And she says, isn't that strange? because he saved me. She says, he saved me in every way that it's possible to be saved. Why does that story sound so familiar? <laughs> the next big movie that James Cameron made was what? Avatar. What's Avatar about? It's about a man who takes on the flesh of another people and enters their world in order to save them from certain destruction, gives his life at the end only to be raised and then lead this new people into a new world. The world Avatar in Sanskrit means incarnation. It's the, I don't know why he tells these stories. Maybe he just knows they always work. But I'm more perplexed by why is it that they always get us? They always work with us. They always capture us. They always draw us in because they're pale stories of this story. 
of God's big story. And when we see that, there's something that resonates, isn't there? There's something that resonates in us about that because we're made for that. It's evidence of this God. Number four, love, this kind of God love, self-sacrificing love. It's evidence for Jesus. And specifically what I mean for that, it's, it's evidence that you and I know him. It's evidence to people that we're one of his, this Jesus. John 13, 34, Jesus said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. One of the areas that I get to work in with here at Timberline for the past few years is working with small groups. Love it. It's a fantastic ministry. I get excited about it. I think everyone should be in some type of a group like that. Um, I received a letter from, from a woman, and she gave me permission to share it. Her name is Margie, and uh, she, she joined a small group, but she, she wrote me a letter to tell me about her experience in it. And um, Margie tells a story that uh, she said Jesus wasn't really a factor in her life. It's just um, faith very much on the outskirts of her life. Jesus nowhere really on the radar. But she, she decided to join a small group about three to four years before she sent me this, <coughs> this letter. And she said, when I joined the group, I was terrified. <laughs> she said, because I'd, I'd known some Christians, a little weird, and I was kind of freaked out. She said two, two concerns. Number one, I thought they were going to be really judgy, you know, really judgmental, judgy, that's what, my, that's what my kids say, really judgmental. And she said, I, f- I was afraid that they were going to like have as their goal to convert me. She said, not interested, okay? Need, need community, not interested in being converted, whatever that might mean or that might look like. So she's really freaked out. And she said, in the, in the small group, um, I realized I was super way off base from what I expected. Um, she said, in the small group, I, I learned about Jesus. She said, but it wasn't just from this. It wasn't just, it was from this, but it wasn't just from this. She said, she learned about Jesus, this is her language, from seeing the pure way that the members of the small group loved each other and me. She said, I have never met a group that is more generous and supportive, that's love and action, <laughs> than these wonderful friends. In 2016, um, the most challenging thing of her life happened. Uh, her husband was seriously injured in a car accident in August of that month, and she said he was unable to work, he was unable to function, he was struggling in every single way. She said he was, he was just the most broken version of himself that you could imagine. And she said the impact on our family, devastating, absolutely devastating. And she said, I have never felt more alone, I have never felt more hopeless in my life, and I'll just read the rest of the letter. She said, at one point, I found the time to ask for prayer from the group. She said, and they prayed. She said, and they fed us, and they walked our dog, and they cleaned our house, and they mowed our lawn, and they brought us groceries, and they provided respite so I could have much-needed break from caregiving. They provided some financial support. They sent us gift cards. They visited us. They showered us with supportive messages. All the while... They were still praying. They wrapped their arms around us and carried us through our darkest 
days. She said, I have never, I've never felt such unconditional love and support, and it has changed me and strengthened my faith in the most profound way. The way they just showed up without even us asking, and they just took care of us. She said it was, this is her language, it was proof that God sends us what we need. Even when we are too overwhelmed to know what we need, she said, that's my small group. She said they are the truest definition of the word God send, and their love is the best example of community I have ever witnessed. I see the face of God in each of their thoughts, words, and actions, and knowing them made me want to be like them. They are who they are because of their belief in Jesus and their devotion to loving and serving others. And she said, I love them all. And she ended by saying, and darn it, they converted me. <laughs> That's this. That's love in action. Being loved. It's a picture of God. It's evidence of who Jesus is. It's personal evidence to us that I do have the life of God in me. It's slow, but it's happening. And it's evidence to people around me that this, this really might be true. It's at least evidence to them saying, I wish it were true. I would like to believe that. Only love can do that. Only love can do that. It's absolutely life-transforming and powerful. Go back to 1 Corinthians 13, the wedding passage. Sometime read it. You want to know one of the most painful readings? Read it and substitute your name for love and see how you measure up. I did it this week, and it's painful. <laughs> Brent is patient. Brent is kind. Brent doesn't envy. Brent doesn't boast, and Brent's not arrogant. Okay, that's where I could just stop. I can't even go any further, right? How do I know if I'm growing? I think it's sort of like the way that I see my kids. My kids don't see that they're growing. I see it, right? The grandparents come and they go, oh my goodness, you've grown. <laughs> One of the best ways you're going to find out if you're growing, who's the person closest in your life? They'll probably be able to tell you whether or not you're growing <laughs> in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self, all of these here. And that's why God gave us community because those are the, those are the agents that help us grow. And it's painful and it's slow, but here's what God tells us. He's more committed to your growth than you are. <laughs> and he says, it's going to be real slow. It's going to be arduous. And God says, I'm in for it. <laughs> and the enemy would want us to get discouraged because of the slowness of the growth. And Jesus would say, no, that's what trees do. They grow really slowly. And so are you in for that? I'm in for that. I want to experience that. And so the series, I want us to really apply ourselves, you guys. I want us to say, I am all in for saying, I want the Spirit to grow this fruit. So I'm a fully orbed Christ follower. And so he gives us means to do that. The means are reading the Bible. Means are prayer. The means are community, the fellowship. The means are communion, different elements. And we do this every single week. We take the bread representing Christ's body broken for us. We take the cup representing his blood, reminding of ourselves of our true life source. This is the sap <laughs> that has to be in the tree. My ultimate hope is in Jesus, not my own strength. I've seen that fail far too many times. 
And so what I will invite you to do during these next few moments here before, before we close is go to one of the stations and get, get the means, pick up the, the symbol of the sap that is our strength, that is our life. And as you take it, just ask God, would you fill me with your spirit in a new way at this moment and same thing tomorrow and same thing the next day? Get these out. Would you stand with me if you're able? And let's read. Let's read our prayer together in your bulletin on the right-hand page. This is, this is, our, this is our ask of God <laughs> for this series. Heavenly Father, I pray that this day I may live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, and peace, patience, kindness, and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Heavenly Father, thank you that this is a prayer that we know you answer. You command us to be filled with the Spirit. So when we ask you to do it, we know it's one that you say yes to. So God, would you fill us moment by moment by the power and the person of your Holy Spirit. And then would you bring this fruit to a ripened place in our life. Give us, give us patience, Lord, for the process. Uh, let us know that, that, that you smile because we're your children and not because of what we've accomplished. We're so grateful, Father, and it's in Jesus' powerful name that we, play, that we pray. Amen. Amen.